If you have a Bible this morning, let's open up to 2 Thessalonians. Remember, we finished 1 Thessalonians last week, so logically we're going right into 2 Thessalonians this morning. So we're going to look at the first 12 verses of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Feel free to use the table of contents in the Pew Bible if you have no idea where that is. Or go, you'll see into the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, keep going, keep going, keep going. You'll see 1 Thessalonians and you'll see 2 Thessalonians. And we're just going to start right at the top in verse 1. And so while you are opening up there for uh, throughout college and for about four years after uh, I graduated from Presbyterian College, I worked at Camp Greystone in Tuxedo, North Carolina full time. I worked there during the summers while I was in college. Uh, and I worked there for several years uh, after I graduated. And it's actually where Rebecca and I first met. It's where we later got married. Kind of we started our life there at, for, at Camp Greystone. And during the camp sessions as they were going along, which is about 12-ish weeks in total that the campers were there uh, on camp, we had almost 800 people. And we would gather in the dining hall every morning for breakfast. It was a whole lot of bodies stuffed into a very tight kind of container there. And one of the things that we would do every morning at the conclusion of breakfast for literally decades, uh, the camp director, who he kind of retired and passed it off to his son, but his name was Jim Miller Sr., uh, he was affectionately known as Jim Daddy. And what Jim Daddy would do at the end of every breakfast kind of session is he would get up and offer kind of like a, a brief lesson or a thought for the day. It was kind of a, hey, you're about to go out uh, you know, into this day. Here's something to think about, dwell upon. He would also tell kind of a funny story. And if you'd been there for a while, you would realize that he had never heard of something called the internet where you could go and get like new jokes. So it was just the same stories and the same ones over and over again. But after a while, it just kind of became endearing. You know, here, oh, okay, here's Jim Daddy. He's telling the Patty story again. Off we go. But some of the examples of these brief lessons that he gave, he would always talk about how we grow in the fourfold way. We're spiritual, we're social, we're mental, and we're physical. And uh, another thing that he would say at, at the very end, he would say, whatever you do in life, whatever is your goal, keep your eye upon the donut and not upon the hole. He would talk about just think, think about the positive things that are there and set your eyes upon a goal. And one of my favorites that we still actually use in our family to this day, thing that Jim Daddy would say, would pay the price for the promise of the prize. Pay the price for the promise of the prize, meaning that you set a goal you work hard over time to achieve it, to achieve that goal. Even in like towards little stuff, like getting dessert after supper. You know, we would, especially when our children were little and they didn't want to eat their vegetables, one of the things that we would say is you can't get dessert until you eat your vegetables. You need to pay the price for the promise of the prize. You want dessert? You got to eat the green things. That's just the way it works. Even towards the big stuff, you want to get better at guitar, do you want to play collegiate golf or soccer, do you want to get into the college of your dreams, do you want to land a job one day, pay, you know, all these things that you can think of, this goal that you set, what do you have to do? Pay the price for the promise of the prize. You, you know, you, you work hard at it, you hang tight. And what Jim Daddy was teaching us was to point our lives towards something and then to stick with it, even if it was hard. Even if it cost us something, even if it took some time and effort, we would set our lives upon this thing and we would move forward and we would pay the price for the promise of the prize. Always this kind of goal and prize standing out there. And another way to say this might be what you hope for 
shapes what you live for. What you hope for shapes what you live for. And when you think about that statement in your own life, what comes to mind? Think about that. We all have a something, right? What you hope for shapes what you live for. What is it in your own life? What do you hope for? What do you hope in? What is your hope actually anchored to? What is it grounded in? How is that hope shaping your life on a daily basis? How are you seeing this thing that you look at in the long term? How is that molding you and shaping you as you think about your own life? Now remember, a working definition of biblical hope is not, I hope it rains this afternoon. A working kind of definition of biblical hope is being certain of certain things. Being certain of certain things. And all that sounds great when life is going well, but the question then becomes is how does that impact us when life gets tough? What happens when life doesn't seem very hopeful? What happens when life doesn't seem very fair? You think about those things and, you know, being certain of certain things, well, that sounds great when the sun's out and life is good, but what, what happens when things get tough? And we probably heard the quote that the only certain things in life are what? Death and taxes, right? You've probably heard that. But the scripture tells us that Christians should not be surprised by the near certainty of trials. Being ostracized in the public square, maybe even facing physical harm for claiming Christ. Those things in and of themselves from the mouth of Christ himself and from the apostles. Saying don't be surprised at almost the certainty of you being of suffering coming because of claiming Christ. And so what certain things can Christians find hope in? Okay, we're thinking like what, what we hope for shapes us. So what certain things can Christians find hope in even when faced with persecution, oppression, slander, ostracism, suffering, whatever it is? What are these certain things that we can hope in? And in those moments when life gets tough, what is the, quote, promise of the prize that makes paying the price worth it? Is there anything that makes it worth it? Let's find out. Let's look at 2 Thessalonians, starting in chapter 1, verse 1. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Word with that in our mind. What, what hopeful things, how does this hope help us in the midst of struggle and strife and trial? Okay, So let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring." This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus." They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might, 
when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power, so that at the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. I'm grateful for that, and I hope you are as well. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we look to his word. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have not left us alone to figure out life, that you have given us your word, you've given us the Holy Spirit, you've given us each other in the church. And Lord, we pray that you would remind us of your grace. We pray that in these moments you would remove distractions from us, help us to focus on what is good and true and right. Lord, redescribe reality to us. Strengthen our weak knees and our weak hearts, O oh Lord. Remind us of your mercy. We ask and pray all of these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, as we begin in this journey to look at 2 Thessalonians over the next few weeks, most conservative scholars think that this letter was written by Paul from Corinth shortly after he wrote 1 Thessalonians in the early kind of 50s A.D., and it is thought that the person who delivered the first letter to the Thessalonians, we don't know who that is, this person who was tasked with carrying this letter, that when they, when they returned back to Paul after delivering this letter to this church, that they brought a quick report back to Paul on the situation in the city and the church. And the thing we need to remember, especially when we think about 1 Thessalonians and go into 2 Thessalonians, the Christians in Thessalonica were a very small religious minority in a major port city known for wealth, prosperity, and rampant pagan worship. You remember when we talked about before, this was a, people saw this was kind of like the New York City of Macedonia. Major port city, a lot of trade coming in and out, a lot of people coming in and out. But it also was not too far away from Mount Olympus. Yes, that Mount Olympus in Greece. And so you can imagine a lot of kind of religious pilgrims going to, you know, pay their respects and offer their sacrifices at the temples of the gods, you know, Zeus and the rest. They would come into Macedonia and then they would then make their journey to Mount Olympus. And that, so Macedonia was kind of the, 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 the portion of the funnel where all of that happened. And so you can imagine being a religious minority in a massive city that is claiming, no, we believe that there is one true God and that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that all the other gods in the pantheon are false gods. You can imagine that was probably not met with, hey, that's a great idea, thanks for letting me know. And they faced a lot of persecution, and obviously that persecution had intensified, and there was still confusion about Paul's teaching on the return of Christ, and we'll see that as we move forward in 2 Thessalonians. And so what Paul did is that after kind of receiving this update on the church, he actually wrote this letter, this short letter, to encourage this church again and to provide them some extra teaching on things that they may uh, be a little bit you know, weak on and things that he thought would be important. 
And so this short letter, 2 Thessalonians, can actually be broken into three major sections that each conclude with kind of a a prayer, a closing prayer for the people in the church. And we're actually looking at this first section in its entirety this morning, which is verses 1 through 12. You notice there's kind of a standard greeting, but it kind of ends with this little prayer. That's section 1. And this, this section offers encouragement to a church facing hardship and persecution. And he, re, he begins by referencing several certain things that should give them and us hope. Remember, biblical hope being certain of certain things. And so Paul is reminding them of these things that are true and right and certain that you can then hope in even in the midst of suffering and persecution. So again, that just gives us a little bit of historical context as to what was going on in this letter. And so the big question this morning that we're going to ask is, okay, what are those certain things that Christians can find hope in even when faced with persecution, oppression, slander, etc.? What are the certain things that Christians can find hope in? We're going to look at two points this morning if you're a note-taking type of person. Two things. We're going to see, number one, Christians find hope in the certainty of God's righteous judgment. The certainty of God's righteous judgment. And number two, the other certain thing, is that Christians can find hope in the certainty of Christ's glorious return. Okay, so let's look at that first one. Christians can find hope in the certainty of God's righteous judgment. This letter starts off, verses 1 and 2, you have a standard Pauline greeting. We hear about Paul, Silvanus, who's also known as Silas, and Timothy are mentioned again. And we, we get this unique Pauline greeting that grace and peace. And it's a combo of a standard Greco-Roman letter greeting. It's a twist on the Greek word for greetings, which Paul references as grace, which is one of his favorite topics in his letters. And it's also a mix of a standard Jewish letter greeting, which includes a pronouncement of peace, which in the Hebrew is shalom. And so you have kind of a Greco-Roman and a Jewish greeting kind of jumbled into one. And if you know Paul's background, he was, he was, a, he was raised as a Jew, but he also had been given a new task to go reach the Greco-Roman world. So grace and peace kind of together, kind of makes sense. And in verses 3 and 4, Paul gives thanks to God for the enduring faith of this church and that he loves, and he tells them that he has told others about their endurance. And fun fact, if you are kind of a linguistic person, actually verses 3 through 10 are just one run-on sentence in the Greek. One just big run-on sentence, verses 3 through 10. And our English translations, thankfully, break them up into multiple sentences so that we can read them. But if you can imagine verses 3 through 10, that's one line. That's one sentence. Pretty impressive. But this first point, Christians find hope in the certainty of God's righteous judgment. In 1859, a uniquely American word appeared in print for the first time in Harper's Magazine. And this word can be defined as, quote, appearing before a judge to receive a deserved rebuke or penalty, unquote. So what was this word that appeared, this uniquely kind of American English word that appeared in 1859? That word is comeuppance. And that is exactly what Paul is talking about. Comeuppance. And apparently the suffering this church had experienced when Paul had written his first letter had not stopped. 
And their faith had been tested by suffering, but they had remained faithful to Christ. And Paul brings that up. I hear a report that even in the midst of suffering and persecution, you have remained faithful. And your faithfulness to Christ has been known by all those in the region around you. And their faith had been tested, but they had remained faithful. And here's what Calvin said. When in particular, we are to bear persecution for the sake of the gospel, there the strength of our faith reveals itself. Another way of saying that is when the rubber hits the road, you find out what you truly believe and hope in when life gets tough. And as a word of encouragement, Paul tells them that their suffering is actually a sign that the kingdom of God is advancing. And it kind of serves like a guarantee of their future inheritance. It shows others, it shows that others recognize that they are united to Christ and that they are being salt and light. What Paul is reminding them of is that God is always at work. The kingdom of God is always on the move. Your lives have been radically changed and altered and shaped by the gospel. So much so that others in the area are starting to pay attention. And it is of no surprise that those who oppose God and hate God, that they are pressing in upon you. And while I know that it might be tough, what this actually is showing you is that what this work that God has done in your heart is the real deal. Other people are taking notice of it. And so even though they are being persecuted now, what Paul is saying is that it will ultimately be known to absolutely everyone that they are truly God's people on the last day. Their perseverance in the faith and long-suffering for the sake of the gospel is a sign that God is at work in their lives and that they are united to Christ by faith and that all will be revealed on the final day. And the Apostle, Paul also, uh, the, the Apostle Peter also wrote about this in his epistle, 1 Peter 4, 12 to 14. And this idea of like this suffering that comes is a sign of union with Christ. Here's what, sec, here's what 1 Peter said, chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, what that doesn't mean is we go out picking fights, trying to look for suffering as a way that we can then validate our faith. I'm not telling you to go be pugnacious. But what we hear about in the scripture is we should not be surprised when we start talking about the core claims of the gospel, the uniqueness of the gospel message, that there is one name under heaven by which men can be saved, and that is the name, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that we believe he is actually the son of God. That he came down and was incarnate. And he lived a human life. And he actually died in real space and time on a Roman cross. And that he actually paid a sin debt. He was the atonement. That substitutionary atonement is the very heart of the gospel. That he laid down his life to absorb the wrath of God that you and I deserved. And that he, was, he died, he was buried in a real tomb in real space and time. And on the third day, he rose in real space and time. And then ascended into heaven. The uniqueness of the gospel. These core truth claims. What, what Paul and what the Apostle Peter are telling us is that in those moments 
where you stand up in a world that is beginning to, to swirl and spiral, if you get up and you start claiming, no, I actually believe this is true, that there is such thing as absolute truth, and you start calling balls and strikes on a culture that hates God, that you should not be surprised at the fiery trial that's going to come at you. But, but, because you are united to Christ by faith, God in the end gets the last word. And so trust Him. Lean in. It's, an, it's a word of encouragement to this church that's facing persecution. And even today, the kingdom of God keeps advancing according to the sovereign will of God and His foreknowledge. And He is still calling and gathering His people in to this very moment. And as God's kingdom advances towards its ultimate fulfillment, we as Christians should not be surprised that the kingdom of the world is going to fight back. Jesus shared a very similar thought with his disciples, John 15. Remember, we spent a year and a half in John. This is towards the tail end of that. Here's what Jesus said, John 15, 18 to 19. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore, the world hates you. Jesus is reminding us, and the, the apostle Paul in the scripture is clear. Reminding us that suffering may indeed come. Ostracism may indeed come for claiming the uniqueness of the gospel. But yet we are called to do that and to be faithful to Christ. And that the Spirit will help us. And we have been given the words of life to rest in and dwell upon. Even while the culture is swirling around us and it feels like it's falling apart, we still trust Christ. And as we consider the current state of our country and world, Following Christ as citizens of the kingdom of God may end up being a costly endeavor in the long run. It may. It just may. I don't know. It just may, though. But even if, those, if that affliction comes, we find hope in the fact that the judge of all the earth will do right and will bring true justice in the end and that vengeance is not ours to mete out. We ask the question, at the end of it all, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And the answer is yes. Will he avenge his name? Yes, he will. And we are called to be faithful. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says that God is going to afflict those who wrongly afflict his people, and he will ultimately bring relief for his people when Christ returns in glory. There is a contrast for those who oppose God and slander him and slander his people. There will be judgment and affliction brought upon them. But in the meantime, for Christ's people who have experienced affliction and ostracism and suffering, for those people there will be relief because of Christ. Now verses 8 and 9 are a clear warning to those who oppose God. And we need to just stare these verses right in the face. Look at verses 8 and 9. There's a clear warning here. It says, Inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus... They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Those are heavy words. Heavy words with a clear warning this morning. So if you are here and you do not trust Christ by faith, please heed the warnings of these words. You can't just say, oh, well, I don't believe them. Just because you don't believe them doesn't mean that they're not true. 
Please hear the warning, the clear warning that is coming from the Scripture and take stock of the certain future of those who disregard the gospel and those who slandered the Lord Jesus Christ. It will be met with punishment. Please, please hear those words. Please hear that warning. Vengeance will be meted out by a holy God for the sins of humanity. Punishment of eternal destruction is mentioned. Paul says that those who oppose Christ will be separated from the, quote, presence of the Lord and of the glory of His might. That Greek word translated presence is the word for face. They will be removed from His face, from His good pleasure, from His countenance. They will be removed from His face. He will turn His face from them. The warning here in these verses is that those who slander God will still experience God, but instead of experiencing His face, which includes His mercy and His love and His grace, they will experience His wrath. It has been said that hell is the presence of God without a mediator. Heaven is the presence of God with a mediator. So the question then becomes this morning as we look at these texts and we we hear these words, what is the hope? What is the anchor point of your hope this morning? What is it really? Is it money? Is it being a quote-unquote good person? Is it your physical appearance? Is it your church attendance? Is it your family name? Is it your job status? Whatever it is, anything other than Christ alone is a fool's errand. Because those things can never be a mediator between a sinful you and a holy God. They're not bad on their own. They just can't save you. You need a mediator between a holy God and a sinful you. And so, what is it this morning that you are grounding your hope in? What is the thing that is shaping your life? If it is anything other than Christ alone, it is a fool's errand. Because those things will disappoint you in the end. There's a simple phrase, hope in Christ, rest in Christ, trust in Christ. He is the anchor point of our lives. And because of Him, because we are united to Him, we are told in Hebrews that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. This everlasting inheritance that is ours by faith, not because of our own personal obedience, not because we're great, but because of what Christ has done, His righteousness given to us. You see, the wrath of God had to be dealt with. This is why substitutionary atonement is at the absolute heart of the gospel. God's holiness had been offended by the sinfulness of people, and it had to be dealt with. The good news of the gospel is, it was poured out, but not on you, which you totally deserved. The good news of the gospel is all of the wrath of God was poured out fully and completely upon the Son of God when He turned His face away from His Son. In those moments, that's what we're talking about here. God turning His face away and instead of His countenance and His good pleasure, Jesus experienced the full wrath of God and He drank the cup to the bottom. You and I have no idea what that feels like. But he drank it to the dregs to fulfill this, that he could be the sacrificial lamb. 
that he would take all of God's wrath that you and I deserved, fully deserved, he took it upon himself so that those who trust him by faith alone can be united to him and can walk in newness of life. And the banner over you, if you were in Christ this morning, we bring it up every week, is it is finished. Your sin debt has been paid for. That's good news. But it came at great cost, not to you, to God the Father and to his Son. It came at great cost. What is the anchor of your hope this morning? God's law demands 100% perfection, and if you lack that, the bad news is you stand on your own merit. The law of God crushes us under the weight of His demand, but it points us to the solution, does it not? Jesus Christ, the righteous one. When you trust Him by faith alone, you are given a perfect righteousness that is not your own. You are one that is credited to your account. The righteousness of Christ becomes yours by faith, and your sinful record is counted as paid in full at the cross of Christ. That's why we sing all these songs about being forgiven and resting in the mercy of Christ. That's why Christians have always been singing people, because we have much to sing about, do we not? Is your hope in Christ and Him alone by faith this morning? Are you able to truly believe and trust at the heart level that in living or in dying, all must be well? Is that the hope of you this morning? In living or... We just sang about it. In living or in dying, whatever comes, all must be well because I am united to Christ. Is that your hope? Is that your hope for real? That's what we're being called to consider this morning. If not, I would urge you to consider the warning place before you this morning. I would urge you to flee for Christ, for refuge as your Savior and mediator. The day of Christ's return is fixed. It is, its historical reality is certain. It will happen in real space and time. But for Christians, the certainty of this promised return is a sure and steady anchor for our souls, especially when faced with affliction, ridicule, and suffering. That's our second point, very short. Second point, Christians find hope in the certainty of Christ's glorious return. See, for those who do not know the Lord, that day will be a terrible day. But for those who know Christ, we say, come Lord Jesus, bring it on, I'm ready. That's where we find hope in the certainty of Christ's glorious return. Look at verse 10. When he comes on that day, man, what a hope. Not if, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Instead of receiving just punishment, Christians will be found praising their Lord and marveling at His glory. The final stanza of Charles Wesley's hymn, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling, captures this, this verse really well. Like, What's that going to look like? Finish then thy new creation, true and spotless let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee. Changed from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. On this great day of the Lord, we cast our crown before him, and we are lost and, and surrounded by and, and overwhelmed by the love and, and wonder and praise of our Lord. 
That on that great and glorious day, we will not gaze at ourselves, we will gaze upon Christ and wonder why He should ever show us such undeserved kindness and grace. That will be the question, will it not, at the end. Lord, why me? Lord, why me? We'll be asking that question until the day of His return, or He calls us home. Lord, why me? Why would you ever show your kindness to me? This is the final stanza and hymn of The Sands of Time Are Sinking, one of my favorites. It says, The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. He says at the end, we will not gaze upon ourselves. We will gaze upon Christ, because Christ is the glory. He is the glorious one, not ourselves. But while we wait in this life, we hear verses 11 and 12, which are a closing prayer for this first section. Look at those as as we close here. It says, To this end, Paul is talking about, We always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for for, for good and every work of faith by his powers. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The amazing thing about this is it says, When he comes on that day, as verse 10 tells us, because of Christ, you will be counted worthy because of you are united to him by faith. His effectual calling upon your life will be complete as you enter into the joy of your master and your faith will be transformed into sight. But while we wait, we pray and we ask God to give us what Paul prayed for. We pray for God to fill us with a renewed resolve to do every good and perfect thing for his glory and by his power. So that we will fulfill our chief and highest end. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism question asks this, what is the chief end of man? What are we here for? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's what we do. How do we do that? Lots of ways. But that's the big idea. That we, we, ask, we also pray finally that we will dwell upon the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ as we remember that we are great sinners, but that He is a great Savior and worthy of all praise and honor for welcoming us in and giving us a hope and a kingdom that cannot be shaken, all of it by grace, all of it by His mercy, All of it because of his steadfast love, his faithfulness, not our own. And that is the message of the gospel. And we rest in the faithfulness of our God. And all of these promises here that we read about, they find their yes and amen not in us, thankfully. They find their yes and amen in Christ. And so it is to the praise and the glory of Christ, even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of suffering, That whether in living or in dying, all must be well. Why? Because our risen Savior, King Jesus, sits on the throne. He watches over and is with his people. And he has promised, I will return. That is a certain thing. I will return in glory to rescue my beloved ones whom I purchased by my own blood at the cross. And I will bring every one of them home. Not a one will be missing. That's good news. Is it not? All right, so what's the fastball? Here it comes, straight down the middle. What do I want you thinking about? 
Okay, in the midst of suffering, when life gets hard, we rest in Christ, we trust in Christ, we hope in Christ, we glory in Christ, all of it for His glory, because He's good. And you can be certain of that. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercy and your kindness. Thank you, O Lord, for searching us and seeking us out where our hearts were hostile and far away from you. You, by your grace and your mercy, you have called us into your presence. Your effectual calling has changed us. We find hope and we rest in you. Whether in living or in dying, all must be well. That you are our hope in life and death. And we confess you until the very end. We pray that you would strengthen us, remind us of your mercy. Help us to encourage each other with these words for your sake. We pray these things all in Christ's precious name. Amen.